Well, if you've been joining us, you know we're in a series called Unconventional Wisdom. And we've been looking at um, some phrases of conventional wisdom and asking what might be an unconventional response to that. And so we're talking about wisdom, right? And wisdom is about how to live your life. Wisdom is about what you do, about how you engage, about how you live. And so conventional wisdom would be the stuff everybody knows, right? The things that everybody just takes for granted, that nobody really questions or doubts because it's just how it always has been. It's just just how the world works. And then you have unconventional wisdom. And unconventional wisdom is sort of an alternative wisdom. It's, it's saying, actually, maybe the way we've always thought about this isn't the best way. Maybe it's not wise at all. Maybe it's actually becoming something that is oppressing and hurting and marginalizing and wounding people. Um, I mean, it's been really interesting to watch this play out. Uh, and I don't even know if you can call it news, and at least news in some of the Christian world. Um, if you're in here and you're my age, which is around 40 and under, you probably grew up in something called purity culture. Anybody grew up in purity culture? How many of you signed that True Love Waits card? How many of y'all signed it again after you messed up? Uh, right? And what's been really interesting is to see that some of the very people who perpetuated, began that culture have now realized how damaging it was and how it messed up for lots and lots of people a healthy expression of human sexuality. And so uh, they're actually going like, maybe we shouldn't have wrote, written those books. Maybe we shouldn't have done this, right? And it was conventional wisdom. If you went to a youth group event in the 90s, you were going to sign one of those cards, whether you liked it or not. Because if you didn't, then everybody would know, Right? So there's unconventional, unconventional wisdom says maybe there's a different way to look at it. And I want to look at a phrase today, and I bet every life in this room has been touched by this phrase. You've either said it or you've had it said to you, and that would be this, the Bible clearly says. How many of you have heard that phrase before? How many of you have thrown that out on somebody before in an argument? Okay, I see those hands. I know, I've done it, right? The Bible clearly says. And what's interesting about the Bible is it gets thrown into almost every discussion. If you're having a discussion about politics, people are going to quote the Bible. If you're having a discussion about science, people are unfortunately going to quote the Bible. Right? If you're having a discussion about relationships, people are going to quote the Bible. The Bible is sort of, in this country, in this culture, especially in the South, the buckle of the Bible belt, uh, people are going to quote it all the time. It comes up again and again and again. You can buy it at Walmart, guys. You can buy the Bible at Walmart. It used to only be specialized Christian bookstores, and now it's everywhere. And people go around saying, it's my favorite book, right? You go to a, how many of you have been to a hotel room and somebody named Gideon got there before you did? <laughs> and left a translation of the Bible you cannot even read, right? Because you didn't grow up in the 1600s. Um, and so the Bible is just everywhere all the time. And so I want to talk about the assumptions that we build into the Bible, and then I want to talk about a few things that I think we can say about that phrase the Bible clearly says, and then I want to offer a few thoughts on what an honest reading and approach to the Bible might look like. So first, we just have to talk about where the Bible came from. We have assumptions about where it came from. Um, this is a Bible, and when I was a kid, I, I honestly assumed, because nobody told me differently, and based on all the communication I heard about the Bible, I assumed that at some point, this just fell out of the sky. And it had gilded edges, my name on the cover in King James English. Anybody else just assume that? Like that's how, I, I kid you not, I, I grew up in like Eastern Kentucky, West Virginia, and I really believe Jesus would have talked like that. Nobody told me that, like the these and the vows and the vines, right? Like I, nobody told me, but I just assumed that that was how Jesus talked and that's how Jesus lived. And he might as well have been doing his work up the holler I lived in because I had no vision 
for a bigger understanding. I assume the Bible fell out of the sky. And when we make that assumption, we ascribe all sorts of things to the Bible that actually can get in the way of it functioning in the way it wants to function and was intended to function. So uh, how many of you have ever heard the phrase, uh, seen a billboard that said, um, Bible, basic instructions before leaving earth? Anybody seen that? Can we just say that's garbage? Like, it's garbage, and we'll talk about why in a minute. It's just not true, and it's an unhelpful way to think about the Bible. Um, So the the Bible is assumed to have fallen out of the sky in some way, to have come from some sort of... and, And I think that there's another way to think about it. First off, the word Bible that we have comes from the Greek word biblia, which means books. Books. Did you catch the s? Not a book, books. Uh, so the Bible isn't a book, it's a library. Right? Um, how many of you still go to libraries? Anybody? Awesome. Awesome. I drive by them all the time. They're great. I believe in them. Um, and so the Bible's a library. It's a collection of texts. Now what's Interesting is if we, if we approach the Bible the same way we would approach a library, what we would learn, or we think about is, that when you go into a library, all of the books in that building aren't written by the same person, are they? There are multiple authors, uh, and that's true about the Bible too. The Bible is a collection of texts written over about a thousand year period of time uh, by different authors. Now some of them, very few, we can identify. Like there's a guy named Paul who wrote around seven letters in the New Testament. There are six letters attributed to him, which almost universally scholars say couldn't have been written by Paul that reflect content that was happening after he died. Right? We have four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, which universally scholars will say were not written by Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We have Old Testament texts that we tend to ascribe to Moses that probably were way after Moses' lifetime. So the Bible is a collection of texts written over a thousand years or more by different authors coming from different contexts, uh, different, different life events, different world experiences. It was produced by two communities, the Bible. The ancient Jewish community and the early Christian community. Those are the two communities that produced the Bible. They had a lot of similarities, and yet they also had a lot of differences. It was written in, a, in three languages. Hebrew, Greek, and some sections of the Old Testament are written in Aramaic. right? So written in languages that we don't readily speak. So if we can't speak the languages, what has to happen? It has to be translated for us. Translation, we'll talk about this maybe a bit more in a minute. Translation is an act of interpretation. Okay, and we'll come back to that. Um, and it's different genres, right? And what I mean by that is, if you go to the movies, and you go in to see a movie like um, The Vow, like that movie, okay? You go in to see that. You do not expect Bruce Willis to jump a, helicopter, uh, a motorcycle through a helicopter, right? Because it's not that kind of movie. Uh, Bruce Willis is in action movies, Right? And so when we approach the Bible, we approach it all if it's the same, but it's not. In the Bible, there's poetry. There are songs. There are parables. There are texts that are pretty much obviously intended to not be taken literally, although they speak a truth. Right? And so the Bible's full of different genres. And when we try to approach it all the same, when we go to the Psalms and read them the same way we might read a gospel, or we go to the Psalms and we read them the same way we might read one of Paul's letters, we're actually trying to make the text fit into a category, into an assumption and understanding that it doesn't want to fit into because it wasn't intended to fit into it. What we have in the Bible isn't as nice and neat as we would like to believe. Right? There were arguments about the books that ended up being placed in these, between these leather-bound covers. Right? There were arguments. As, early as, the, as late as the Protestant Reformation, you had Martin Luther, not a good dude, but you had Martin Luther who was arguing to throw certain books, he wanted to throw certain books in the river. 
Like he wanted to take James and Revelation out. He didn't think anybody would notice. We'll just throw them in the river and we'll move on. Right? There have been arguments about what should be in there and what shouldn't. The Bible's a messy, messy text. And if you read it, and what I often find is sometimes the people who like, champion it the most have read it the least. Um, when, you don't read, when you read it, when you actually get in there, you'll, you'll realize, man, I can't read this all to my kids. Anybody else had that experience? Where you're hearing, like sometimes we're driving down the road and I'll catch a radio preacher and I, it's sort of like a car accident. I just have to listen for a minute just to see what's going to happen. And then I realize, oh, they're saying things I don't want my kids to hear because they're grounded in an understanding of a story or a text that is really just hateful. Um, And so the Bible has, I guess to say it politely, the Bible has issues. Now, I also love it. And I've given my entire life to learning about it and studying it and teaching it. And uh, I don't see that changing uh, for me. So what what might we do? If the Bible clearly says, it doesn't clearly say. You can find, for example, let me give you one example. The text I I mentioned in my prayer, one of the prophets says that there's going to be a day when we're going to beat our swords into plowshares. Right? Everybody know that text? And Isaiah. Um, there's another writer, I believe Joel, who says, it's time to take your plowshares and beat them into swords. Confusing message, correct? There are texts that say you should commit genocide against an entire group of people, and then there's stories that come around and say, actually, no, God loves that entire group of people. The Bible exists with intention. The Bible is Thanksgiving dinner. <laughs> well, you sit down with your family, and everybody's like, can we talk about this? Grandpa Hank's going to throw the turkey leg again. You know what I mean? Like, it's that. It, it, it exists in tension. It exists in frustration. And what we have tried to do is just neaten it all up to the point where we close all the seams and everything just seems to flow. And the Bible doesn't want to do that. It, it wants to be this discussion, this conversation that's held in tension. So a few things about what the, about the phrase the Bible clearly says. First, the Bible doesn't say anything. Period. Bible doesn't say anything. The Bible reads. We make it say. Does that make sense? The Bible reads. There there are words printed on pages. We read those out loud, and then we begin to say what we think it means. Now, the danger with this is that often, and I've heard preachers do this, and when I was younger, I probably did this. They would get up, and they were going to say something, and say, now listen, I am not going to give you my opinion right now. I am just going to tell you what the Bible says. So if you've got a problem with it, your problem's not with me. It's with God. <laughs> and, and that's an authority grab, right? Like, you can't question my understanding of this text, because if you question my understanding of this text, you then question God. That's a tall order to question God in that way. Most people are a little wigged out by that. But, but here's the reality. That's just not true. I have never once given anything in a sermon that is other than my opinion. Everything is an act of interpretation. The minute you say, here's what this means, you're interpreting the text. You cannot get around it. You can't avoid it. It's just how it is. You interpret. You say, this means this. Um, and, And I think that's okay. All interpretations aren't equal. People who read the Bible and come away with, hey, maybe we should exterminate an entire group of people, that's a bad reading. Right? People who go away from the Bible and say, hey, we have a, now we have justification to exclude an entire group of people. That's a bad reading. Because it's not my reading, right? <laughs> like, like, that's how you decide. Um, we, we, tend, we, we tend to just live with this understanding with, without ever explicitly saying it. When I read the Bible, I'm doing an act 
of interpretation. And every time I say what a text means, what I'm ultimately saying is this is what it means for me. This is what it means to me. Now, it may be because I've studied context and history and language and I feel like I can make a statement on this. Uh, or it may mean that I read it and I just had a thought about it and I'm going to throw it out there. Facebook has really made the art of interpretation difficult. You know what I mean? Because everybody assumes that, that they have the full and final say. So we just have to get away from thinking the Bible says anything. The Bible doesn't say, we make it say. Second, uh, if it's clear, if the Bible is clear, why are there so many different perspectives? Why do people disagree? When you've been in a disagreement about the Bible, how do you know who's right? Well, clearly it's because you're right. And that's how I typically approach my, like, I'm right, right? Um, but if the Bible's clear, then why is it that we have over 36,000 denominations? And some of them even have some similar names. They just, like, keep trying to distance themselves from the other, right? Why is that? Why do we have 30? If, there if there's a clear biblical text on something, why do we have 30? 30? That's a new way to say it. 36,000 denominations. And I bet there are more being born all the time. That's just an old statistic. People disagree on what the Bible says. And I want to give you an example of the disagreement of interpretation. How many of you remember when that dress thing went around? <laughs> all right. Let's put that up there. Now, the great debate... How many of you have no idea what this is? Okay. So in 2016, where have you been? In 2016, <laughs> this picture went around uh, social media like wildfire because some people saw a blue dress and some people saw a gold dress. How many of you see a gold dress? What? <laughs> I'm not going to give you my opinion. I'm just going to tell you what the Bible says. That is a blue dress, if I've ever seen one. It's in Third Hezekiah, look it up, right? So people were going on and on, back and forth about what color this dress was, and some people saw it, just like some of you, and said, that is a gold dress. How many of you see a blue dress? The majority of you. I should tell you something, people. The majority of you see a blue dress, right? And, and people really do see it. People see a blue dress, people see a gold dress. After this, I think it was last year, there was another thing that went around, and I'm gonna play, we're going to play a little, it's going to have a video, but that's not consequential. Listen to this audio. There were two phrases that people were talking about. One was, one was uh, Yanny. Laurel. Yeah, here we go. Laurel. Laurel. Okay. Laurel. Laurel. A couple more times, just for effect. Laurel. Laurel. Okay. Laurel. How many of you heard the phrase Laurel. Good. The right, the, those of you who are correct. How, how many of you heard Yanni or Yanni? Wow. So who's right? <laughs> Me, right? Come on. Who's right? Now here's what's interesting. The first time I heard that, I heard Laurel every time and still do. But we, I was at lunch with a friend and he said, no, no, it's clearly Yanni. And he played it and he started like saying it to me, and I totally got sucked into Yanni for just a minute. And then when lunch was over and I heard it, I was like, that's definitely Laurel. I've been deceived. He's a false prophet trying to bring me to the side of Yanni, and I'm clearly a Laurel person. Um, so, so, right, th this is a thing. People see something. They see the same picture. They see two different things. They hear the same audio sounds, and they hear two different things. When we come to the Bible, we do the same thing. And that's because we, we do not 
come to the Bible as it is. We come to the Bible as we are. We do not come to the Bible as it is. Like that phrase people say, well, I'm just going to tell it like it is. No, you're going to tell it like you are. You're going to tell it like you are. You're going to tell it how you see it, how you've experienced it. And all of that is uh, born out of a worldview, out of your lenses. Everybody has lenses through which they see the world. And most of the time, uh, almost all the time, we are completely ignorant that they're there. Right? I hear something, I filter it through all sorts of uh, filters that I don't even know exist in front of me. And then I begin to start saying what I think, how I feel, and what I should do in the world. Right? So there is no place. Um, I guess what I'm trying to say is the Bible's subjective, completely. Uh, there is no objective place, because it was written by subjective human beings about their experiences. And then we read it a couple thousand years later, uh, and we bring our own stuff into it. Uh, and it's, it's what happens. So, so if it's clear, why in the world do people disagree? And then the last thing, sound bites and texts without context are really problematic. Like when people just, how many of you have ever been in a discussion in person online and somebody just starts quoting the Bible and you just like, ah, because what does that do? One, it's intended to shut down conversation. Well, I got this random verse from the book of uh, Nahum. It says, if you question this, you're going to hell. So you better back off, right? Like that sort of thing. The, the Bible being quoted often is intended to end conversation, not begin it. See, I'm right because there's a random, obscure Bible verse in a book that nobody reads ever that supports my position. Now, what they won't tell you is there's probably 18 more verses in there somewhere that support against their position because the Bible is a, not a univocal, not just one voice, it's many voices. And it's voices that are writing about their experiences with God that were, I believe, very real experiences for them. Um, but they were experiences for them that they are interpreting and then handing to us and inviting us to in, engage with. So when we take, for example, how many of you know the Roman road? That's a trigger for some of us, right? Because, I mean, what used to happen, there, there was a select, selection of a few verses throughout the book of Romans that if you were going to try to soul win somebody, that you would sit down with them and you would quote or read those specific verses from the book of Romans. And you often had a bracelet with multicolored beads on it because you went down to the church basement with your youth group and like spent like three days before you went outside and the light burned because you made bracelets for three days straight. Right? And you would try to, you try to witness to people through that. And you would just take random verses out of Romans and essentially we're trying to tell people if you don't do these things, you're going to be in big trouble with God. Right? It's, it's, it's a soundbite. It's taking a text out of context. The book of Romans is not about where you go when you die. It's about a community full of Jews and Gentiles who didn't like each other, and Paul's trying to bring them together in some sort of way. One summer, I served on, um, uh, we called it summer missions, but I was on a, a, a traveling vocal team. I was the sound person and preacher. They did not let me sing. It's unfortunate, because I could have been somebody, probably. Um, but uh, every morning, we were with a bunch of other teams in a, like a cabin at a youth camp, and every morning, we would come down to breakfast, and we would do, somebody would say, okay, who's going to drop it? And drop it meant somebody's going to, there's a big old family Bible in the lobby and like it just reeked of age and dust. And somebody would open it without looking. And that was the verse for the day. Y'all, I learned a lot of interesting Bible verses through that summer. Stuff that you don't ever, you're not allowed to read in public because it's awkward and uncomfortable. That's a terrible way to read the Bible though, isn't it? Like when we approach the Bible as if it was some sort of magic eight ball. Like, well, should I go out with so-and-so? No, right? Should I become a dentist? Signs point to yes. That's how we approach the Bible so often. We're just looking, we want the Bible to be an answer book. And actually, I think, 
What the Bible wants to do is help us ask better questions. To help us become aware of our biases and the way we see the world that is actually not helpful or productive. Because the text has a context. Every story in the Bible has a context. Actual soil. Whether it's a a parable or a metaphor or an actual story, it all comes from a group of people who are rooted in soil. And it comes from a context of oppression, by the way. Everybody who wrote the Bible was a part of a minority group of people who were being oppressed by superpowers. So when I come to the Bible in 2019, as an American citizen, a straight white cisgendered American citizen, um, I cannot read the Bible unless I first become aware of all that stuff. Now, I can read it, but I can't read it. You know what I'm saying? Because when I go to a text and I read it, I am automatically thinking, huh, well, this text must be about the afterlife. It's talking about some sort of age to come. It must be. And so we assume the Bible's about basic instructions before leaving earth. Like, I'm, I'm getting out of here. When the comet comes by, we're going to jump on it, and we're going to go somewhere else, and that's where we're going to live. That only makes sense to people who have grown up with privilege. It only makes sense to people who grew up with power. And, and as citizens of the largest economic and military superpower the world has ever known, I, I read the Bible through that lens. And what the Bible's actually saying is we're sick of these global military economic superpowers because they are uh, enriching themselves at our expense. You go read the Psalms and realize they're not written from our perspective, but the perspective of people often that our country has oppressed it'll get real uncomfortable real quick. And it's impossible to think, gosh, they're talking about the afterlife. No, they're talking about equity in this life. They're talking about the oppressors being thrown off in this life. They're talking about wholeness and freedom and liberation and everybody having enough in this life. And for us to approach, when we approach it with all of our stuff, we fail to see this is not, this is, these are texts written about us more than they're texts written for us. They're written about where we come from. They're written about our place in the world. What does it mean to become aware of that? What does it mean to take the Bible so seriously that we don't just do shoddy readings that don't dig in to the context? I'll never forget, uh, on a Wednesday night, five or six years ago, there was a guy in the church who I was pastoring, and I loved him dearly. We had become good friends. And we had this Wednesday, it's sort of like Reconstruct is now, where you just kind of throw out whatever you want and we'll talk about it. And he came in one night and he was really upset. And he took over the meeting and just grilled me for about 45 minutes. It was really, I had a great time. It was a lot of fun. Um, And he he would ask questions about, well, you said this Bible story means this, but here's what I think it means. Uh, And you said this Bible story means this, but here's how I've always understood it. And you say say that the Bible is written in Hebrew and Greek. Are you saying that somebody who can read Hebrew and Greek can understand the Bible better than me? And I just said, absolutely, that's what I'm saying. For sure. People who are fluent in it can read it better than any any of us, right? Because they understand the context. They understand the language. They understand the tradition. But I remember that being for him such a, like, context had never been part of the story. And I remember watching that struggle in him between what he had always thought about a text and then what the text might be asking him to change. And I, I've been there. Anybody else been there? Where you, you become aware of something in the text and it completely alters your relationship with it. And I think we have to begin to understand that. that. The Bible is a text written by oppressed people who have suffered long and who are longing for the day 
when liberation will come. And that liberation for Christians, they, they, this is why they crafted their story like this. They found that liberation embodied in Jesus, right? They saw the, the big thing uh, in, in, in connected in a human life, and it changed everything for them. But to be very clear, the Bible's not our story. The Bible is a story about what our story does to people. And perhaps where we're being asked to be transformed is to realize we as a culture and as a society and as a people need a better story. Not a story of exceptionalism, but a story of compassion. And that's what's happening, I think. When people say the Bible clearly says, just tell them all that stuff. <laughs> or, or just say, I don't, I don't think so, because it doesn't, right? It doesn't. So here's a few things about an honest reading of the Bible. I think, first, we have to acknowledge our biases and our privilege. We have to acknowledge that. We all have them. I have them now. When I read something about eternal life in the Bible, I automatically assume it has nothing to do with the afterlife. It's one of my biases now. I just assume it doesn't, right? We all bring biases to the table, and we all have privilege of some sort, probably, just based on where we're living, whether we know it or not. So I think we have to begin to be honest about that. Read a text, and then we're like, hmm, why is this text a struggle for me? Why is it that I don't like this text? Maybe it's because I want it to be something it's not. Maybe it's because it's challenging the way I see the world, the way I live in the world. So I think it begins with this acknowledgement that when I come to the Bible, I bring a ton of baggage with me. Right? I bring all of whatever religious trauma I had growing up with me. I bring all of my experiences in life and all that stuff that I've collected over all this time. I bring it all, and I can't not, but what I can do is say, it exists. I will never get up in front of you and tell you what the Bible says. I'll tell you what I think about it. And then you, as a human being, an autonomous, free human being, you get to say, yeah, that sounds good, or I have questions about that, or hey, maybe I, there's another way to see it, right? Like That's what we get to do. So we approach it acknowledging bias and privilege. And we have to, secondly, engage beyond the surface. If we never get below surface readings, and, and there's this, um, the Thing people talk about, the plain meaning of the text. Anybody heard this before? We just need to assume that the plain meaning of the text is what's right. But if you put the Bible in front of 20 different people, you're going to get 40 different plain meanings of the text. It's just how it works. All right, so I think we have to engage beyond the surface. It means doing the hard work of asking, okay, this is a text in this letter. It was probably written in this time period. What do we know about that? Right? And, and it's important. And that leads to the next thing. I think, I think this happens best in community. I think the Protestant Reformation happened for some good reasons at the time. Um, but I think that one of the problems is what we've done as, uh, as Protestants is, you know, one of the big things Luther was frustrated with was the Pope, right? But we still have a, we traded, you know, a, a, a human Pope for a paper Pope, a leather-bound paper Pope. Uh, and we all became the interpreters of it, right? And so I think that, absolutely, I'm all for reading the Bible. I, I do it so, I, I do it for fun sometimes. That is the kind of person I am. That's my wild Friday night. Let's dive into the Bible, Song of Songs at night. You know what I mean? Like that is sort of what I do for fun. So I, I believe reading the Bible is, is beautiful and important. I think making big decisions about what the Bible means happens best in a community of people where we can wrestle with it together, where we don't read it sort of in isolation from other people. Because when you come to a community of people, we're all different from each other. And there may be something based on your life experiences that you hear in a text that I completely ignored uh, and that you could bring to light. So I, I think doing it in community, having these conversations about difficult test, texts in community 
is where the life is. And it's where we can actually come together and decide, you know what, maybe, I don't know, maybe the Bible's a little messier than we imagined. And maybe that's a good thing. Because one of the most important lessons I've learned is that life is messy. And when you have a text that is so pristine and clean, and it can't be touched by the mess, it just reminds us that we'll never measure up. Measure up. Right? But when you dive into the text and you realize that those folks they've they written about in there are a lot like us. They're a lot like us. And yes, when you approach the Bible, you'll find commands to commit genocide. And you'll find Christians who still want to say, hey, that's God's word. It's not. You'll find texts that tell people how to own other people. You'll find texts that tell women they need to essentially just be quiet. And thank goodness we have realized the error of our ways. Our ancestors were wrong about some things. But I'll tell you what they give us. They give us an ark. When you go to the Bible and you read the text in the Bible, what you'll see is in their fits and starts and it's beautiful moments and terrible moments, but you'll see, some, you'll see that it's going somewhere. Right? And where you'll see it's going is to more and more inclusion, more and more everybody's welcome at the table, more and more... Um, we need all the voices to be present. That's where it's headed, right? That, that's where it's going. This is why when Paul writes in Galatians, there's neither male nor female, slave or free, you're all one in Christ. That was the first egalitarian statement in human history, some people say. Like Paul was the first person to say, you know what? I, I, think, I think the sexes are equal. And I think we need to give equal sight of both voices. That's in our tradition. And now the people after him are like, nope, that's uncomfortable. Right? So there's change and there's growth and then there's a little bit of regress, but it's going somewhere. And, and, and this is why we can't give up on the Bible, friends. We can't. Because there are people who read the Bible and they read it in all the regressive ways. And they need other voices to come along and say, actually, this isn't your book. It's not even a book. It's a library. You can throw that in there. This doesn't belong to you. It belongs to all of us. And there are some of us who say there's a better way to read it. There's a way to understand it to interpret it, and to engage with it that leads to more flourishing of, of all human beings, of all God's beloved children. There's a way to do it that is actually not regressive and violent, and it doesn't subjugate people. It actually is in the process of setting people free. Are you with me? The Bible doesn't clearly say anything, and I am so grateful that that's the case. Let's pray. God, for this frustrating, difficult, messy, liberating, hopeful collection of texts that our ancestors thought, hey, maybe we should preserve this. We're grateful. May we have the courage to approach the Bible, not, not as some sort of off-limits sacred object, but as a real human experience of, of seeking the, the divine, of seeking to realize the divine is here, all around us, in us, in the world. May we cherish their stories, even, even when they're uncomfortable. May we cherish that they're there to teach us the lessons, that, that they're there to remind us of where we've been so that we don't go back, and that they're there to show us the way forward. They're there to show us the ark, where history needs to go, not toward more exclusive, less loving, less compassionate, 
but to more inclusive and universal and generous toward love. May that be our greatest lens as we approach the scriptures and as we approach one another in the world. May it be the lens of love. And may we encounter our ancestors in these pages. And may we allow it to give us the energy we need to move forward in more loving, more beautiful ways. Grateful for this time. We're grateful for this community. We offer this in Jesus' name. Everybody said, amen. Amen.